Clancy Pasta presents, I just moved to a small town and there's something wrong with the people living here. Written by Scary Stories with BB. And make sure to keep your eye on the author's page in the description as he's currently turning the story into a full-length novel. I've lived in a relatively big city all my life, so when my company asked me to relocate to a small town in the middle of nowhere, I wasn't too happy about it. I argued that I could just work remotely with the team there, but my supervisor was adamant about having face-to-face -face meetings and building better team cohesion and collaboration. They argued that I could stay in my current residing place, but would need to switch teams in my entire role. So eventually, I picked the lesser evil, to move out into the aforementioned small town. Since I had to bite the bullet, I figured I'd try to make the best of the given situation. Maybe moving to a small town would be a good change of pace. The first thing I noticed when moving was that the rent was a lot cheaper, so I could afford a big house all to myself, which lifted my spirits a little. Another thing that was a big plus for me was the fact that traffic there was pretty much non-existent. My new house was in the peaceful part of the town. The entire town was peaceful, but my area more so. And since my previous apartment was on an avenue with lots of noise, this tranquility was refreshing. As soon as I arrived and unpacked, my doorbell rang. When I opened the door, a man with a huge grin on his face stood in front of me. With his glasses, slick hair, and tidy clothing, he looked like a typical suburban dad. Hi there, my name's Jim, he said perkily, the smile never leaving his face. I live across the street. I'm guessing you're Chris, right? Uh, yeah. I was taken aback. How do you know that? He chuckled and said, Oh, sorry about that. This is a small town, as you already know, and news travels fast. I mean, when I got my letter from the court, my neighbors knew it before I did. I gave him a weak chuckle and shook his hand. Nice to meet you, Jim, I said. So listen, my wife makes great cupcakes, so she'll probably bring you some later as a welcome gift. Oh, that's really not... Afternoon, Clara! Jim waved to a young woman walking her dog down the street. Taking Rex for an early walk today, huh? Yeah, you know, he was really impatient today. Clara smiled widely and then looked at me and said, Oh, hi there. You must be our new neighbor. I waved back and introduced myself. I'll be sure to stop by later so we can say proper greetings, she said, before having the leash in her hand tugged by the dog. She let the dog take the lead and shouted back, Would love to stay longer, but Rex is in a hurry. Bye for now. She waved and went down the street. Jim waved back and then turned back to me and said, That's Clara. She lives down the street in that pink house over there. She runs a book club and has the ladies of the town join once a month for some wine and book discussion. But my wife Sarah says they mostly focus on the wine and gossiping. He chuckled and I smiled back out of curiosity. So, uh, listen, I said. I gotta go unpack the rest of my things, so, uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally understand. Hey, if you need any help, don't hesitate to call me. I'll be home all day long. Thanks, Jim. Have a good one, I said, seeing Jim's friendly and smiling face before I awkwardly closed the door. He seemed like a nice guy, but I was tired and irritated from the long trip and just wanted to take a break. 
After taking a short nap, I decided I would go explore the town. I knew there wasn't much to be seen, but I wanted to spend my time somehow, since I didn't have any work for the day. As soon as I got outside and locked my front door behind me, I heard a voice from the pavement. Hi, neighbor. I turned around and saw an elderly lady standing in front with a wide smile. She held a plastic food container in her hands. Hello, ma'am. I smiled back. My name's Chris. Oh, I already know, dear, she said and approached me. Here, I made you some homemade chocolate chip cookies. She handed the plastic container to me, still smiling widely. Wow, thank you, ma'am. That's really kind of you, I said. You can call me Marcy, the lady said. Maybe living here wouldn't be so bad, I thought to myself. Marcy stared at me with her big smile in anticipation, so I took it as a cue that I should check her cookies out. I removed the lid and was a little disappointed to find that the cookies were mint-flavored, but I tried one in front of her nonetheless and told her how great they tasted. No, you should try my lasagna. That will blow you away, dear. She gently put her hand on my wrist and chuckled. Well, I have to get going. My grumpy husband will be angry if he doesn't get lunch in time. Have a good day, dear. Thank you again, Marcy. Oh, and please be sure to return the plastic container when you are done. I've donated so many of those to other people and rarely ever got any of them back. I'll be sure to bring it back to you as soon as I can. I smiled and went back inside to leave the cookies. I got out again and drove down the empty street. Immediately to my left in the distance on a hill, I noticed a big tower of some sorts. It looked like a radio tower since it had an antenna on the top, so I didn't give it too much thought. I went to my company's office, which was only a few minutes drive away from my house. The office looked exactly like back in my city, so that made me feel homey. The co-workers welcomed me and we talked briefly before I headed out. It was around 8pm when I returned home and night had already fallen. I wanted to make some dinner, so I decided to walk down to a nearby store and buy something simple like frozen pizza or whatever. I waltzed down the street, spinning my car keys around my finger. On my way there, I ran into Jim and his wife. Hey Chris, how was your first day here? Jim grinned again. This is my wife Sarah, by the way. I shook her hand and we talked a little bit. So I was just telling Sarah about you, he said. We haven't seen a new face in, well, it must have been years. Just then, a young man in sportswear who was jogging ran past us, saying hi to us in passing. It's true, Sarah smiles as well. But whoever comes here usually never leaves. They just love the peacefulness of the town. I mean, who would want to live in a big city with so much pollution and traffic jams anyway, right? I saw Clara come out the front door of her house behind Jim and Sarah, taking out the trash. She waved, and I waved back. Now honey, it has its pluses as well, Jim interjected. Just then, I saw a red light blinking in the distance. It didn't take me long to realize it was coming from the radio tower. I stared at the red light and asked, Hey Jim, what's with that tower over there? Is that a radio station? I pointed at the tower, squinting my eyes. I got no response from Jim, so I repeated my question. 
Jim, that tower. What exactly... I stopped my question halfway through when I looked at Jim. He and Sarah were no longer smiling and were instead staring over my shoulder wide-eyed with a blank facial expression. Jim? I asked and looked behind to see what they were staring at. What I saw only put my nerves on edge even more. The jogger from before stood motionless in the middle of the street, facing away from me, just like Jim and Sarah. I saw with my peripheral vision that an old man who was sitting on his porch was staring in the same direction as the other three residents. I turned back to Jim and Sarah and saw Clara behind them still standing in front of her house, still holding the trash bag. She was blankly staring in the same direction over my shoulder. I felt my heart racing a million miles an hour, but I was frozen in place, afraid to make any sudden moves. Very slowly, I took a step back, and then, in all that mess, my trembling hands managed to drop my car keys on the ground with a loud clatter. The sound echoed in a painfully loud manner, and instantly, all residents turned their gazes towards me. I froze in place again, not sure what would happen next. I wanted to run, but was rooted. Jim and Sarah were not blinking, and the longer I stared at them, the more I realized they were entirely motionless, like statues. Slowly, I took a few more steps back, and they followed me with their unblinking gazes, twisting their necks in my direction, but not moving their bodies. I couldn't bear their penetrating stares, so I looked down at my shoes and slowly took step by step. For example, you can find all the big stores anywhere in a big city, unlike here, Jim suddenly said. When I looked back at them, they seemed to be back to normal all of a sudden, smiling again. I looked over their shoulders at Clara and saw that she was placing the trash bag in the can and heading back inside. I frantically turned around and saw that the jogger continued running and the old man on the porch was gone. Hey Chris, you okay buddy? Jim asked. I turned back to him and stared, trying to figure what the hell just happened. I probably seemed like a lunatic staring at him and sweating bullets. Maybe you're stressed from moving. You should go home and get some rest, Sarah said with concern. We gotta go pick up the kids. You be good now, okay? Jim patted me on the shoulder, and the two of them left. I looked at the radio tower and realized the red light had stopped blinking entirely. Part 2 I was a little creeped out by the incident that happened on the day of my arrival to the town, but I ended up dismissing it as my tired mind's exaggeration, or my neighbors just staring at something I didn't see. Either way, I wasn't going to let this little incident ruin my life here. A few days had gone by, and I had all but forgotten about it, adjusting to my new environment and focusing on work. My coworkers were really friendly, and often offered to help me, which was nice of them, albeit at times a little overwhelming. This seemed to be a pervasive behavior among all residents, whether I went to work, a store, a bar, or simply drove back home. On the third day after I moved, my apartment started smelling more and more like mint from Marcy's cookies, and I wasn't planning on eating them, so I just dumped them in the trash bin. 
I washed her plastic container and went to her house. When I rang the doorbell, I waited a full minute before turning around. The sound of the door opening came from behind me, and Marcy's perky voice greeted me. Oh, hello, dearie. I'm so sorry for keeping you waiting. I'm an old lady, and it takes me a while to reach the door. It's alright, ma'am. I just wanted to give you back the cookie container. Thank you for the cookies, by the way. I held out my hand with a smile. She took it and inspected it with a smile before looking back at me. You ate them all, I hope? She asked. Uh, yeah. All gone. Sweets don't last long in my house. I nervously chuckled. She stared at me with her unyielding smile for an awkwardly long moment. Well, all right then, she finally said. Would you like to come in for a cup of coffee or tea? I also have some lemon cake which I made today. I'd love to, but I have some important work to do. Thank you, though. I smiled back. You be sure to stop by any time, dear. My husband Oliver would love to meet you, Marcy said. I waved to her, and as I turned around, I stopped in my tracks. Hey, Marcy. I turned back towards her. She already closed her door halfway through. Yes? She asked. What's that big radio tower over there? I pointed over yonder. To be honest, I don't think anyone knows, dear. Has it been here long? Well, I've been living here for over 50 years, and the tower was only built around six months ago. At first, everyone thought the town was getting a new radio station. But that wasn't the case. Marcy shrugged. On the day they started working on the tower, multiple vans kept driving in and out of the hills where the tower was being built, but we never got to see which company they were working for, nor did we get to stop and ask them. They were in such a hurry, they were and they didn't look friendly in the slightest. I wanted to offer them some cookies at first, but then changed my mind. The next day they were gone, and the tower was up, just like that, in a day. I see, I scratched my chin. And have you ever noticed any lights coming from the tower, or something like that? No, I don't think so, dear. In fact, I don't think the tower serves any purpose at all. It may have been abandoned, which is understandable. Setting up the tower all the way back there behind the hills, it's just not practical, and it's not close to anything. I really should get going. Thank you, ma'am. I nodded and finally left. A few more days went by, and I started to get adjusted to my new environment. I'd see Jim, Sarah, Clara, and some other neighbors outside on a daily basis would sometimes even run into them downtown. Then, on a Thursday night, Jim knocked on my door. Hey Chris, how's your night going? Hope I'm not interrupting anything, he grinned. He always wore similar clothes, a shirt and jeans, and I wondered if he was the type of guy to have a closet full of the same outfits that he would just change daily. No, not at all. Want to come in? I asked. No, it's fine. I gotta go back soon. Sarah's making a casserole and she'll be angry if I'm not there in time. Anyway, listen. The neighbors usually organize game night on Fridays. It's a really good way to unwind and, you know, get to bond a little bit. So we figured we'd have you join us tomorrow. What do you say, champ? I don't know, Jim. I have this thing tomorrow that I... Oh, come on. It'll be fun. 
He threw his hands up in the air and smiled even wider. He then leaned in and whispered, And you know, between us, I think Clara might have taken a liking to you, and she'll be there tomorrow. But you didn't hear it from me. He said that last sentence in a normal tone, and then waited for my response with a smile. I mean, I guess I can join for a little bit, but I really can't stay for too long. That's my guy, Jim said, stepping backwards to his house. Come over to my place tomorrow, 8pm, bud. Wait, should I bring anything? I shouted after him. No need. You're the guest of honor, Chris. And with that last sentence, he went back inside. How the hell did I get into this mess? I guess I'll just bite the bullet and stay there tomorrow for an hour, and then make an excuse that I need to go. Friday night came much faster than I thought, and I dreaded socializing with a bunch of people I didn't know. But just like with moving here, I tried to make the best of it. I donned my casual clothes at 7.50pm, and as soon as I approached Jim's front door, I heard perky voices coming from the inside, which multiplied my anxiety. I rang the doorbell and heard Jim's voice say something like, Let me just get that, among the racket. The door opened a few seconds later, and Jim stood there, same clothes and all. Hey, look who's here! Come on in, come on! He stepped aside, and I went in. I heard unanimous voices greeting me way more enthusiastically than I'd like, and I tried to return that enthusiasm at least slightly. Some of the people who I knew were there, including Clara and Jim's wife and kids. Another married couple, Daniel and Alexis, were there with their own kids. So, the children were playing with each other while the adults sat around the table and talked. As soon as I entered the room, Sarah showed me to my seat and offered me something to drink. I thanked her and joined in on the conversation. We had just decided that we're going to play Risk tonight. Is that okay with you, Chris? Jim asked. Yeah, I'm fine with that, but you'll have to introduce me to the rules. I nodded. Pretty soon, we started playing and... Despite my initial skepticism, I was having fun. Claire sat next to me, so she gave me tips whenever it was my turn. Jim was eliminated from the game early on, but he was as enthusiastic as ever, cheering on and giving tips to other players. Attack Peru so you can get the region bonus, Daniel told Alexis about 20 minutes into the game. Don't, then Chris can attack you from Africa, Jim shouted. Just leave two figures there and you'll be fine. Sarah shouted. There was a moment of commotion, with everyone shouting advice to Alexis. I glanced to my right at Clara, who seemed to be observing the situation with a smile on her face. I looked down and started counting my remaining tanks before my next turn. Halfway through my counting, the entire room suddenly went dead silent, just like that. I'm not talking like people stopped shouting and waited in anticipation children playing in background, etc. I mean, so quiet that you could hear a needle drop on the floor. Instinctively, I looked up and my blood froze. Everyone was staring directly at me. I turned my head to my right very slowly, hearing the collar of my shirt brushing against my neck. That's how quiet it was. Claire was staring at me wide-eyed, merely inches away from my face. Even the children were frozen in place and were facing me with their menacing gazes. 
I held my breath and became painfully aware of how loud any movement I made was. I had to get out of there. I braced myself to run if necessary. Ever so slowly, I pushed my chair back with my legs, which in turn produced a loud scraping sound. To my horror, all the adults in the room mirrored my movement, moving their chairs back simultaneously with a synchronized scraping sound. Despite my better judgment, I moved the chair another inch, and so did the adults. I slowly turned my head towards the exit, and the people followed my gaze to the door and then back at me. They made every movement in such a synchronized way that it seemed practiced to perfection, and yet I knew something unnatural was happening here. Without further thinking, I jumped out of my chair and everyone else did the same. I didn't stick around to see what would happen, but instead ran for the door, opening it widely and running back into my own house, locking my front and back doors and double-checking if they were secure. I went up to the second floor and approached the window in my bedroom while keeping the lights off. With trembling hands, I moved the curtains away slightly and peered at Jim's house. What I saw made my stomach drop to my knees. Everyone in Jim's house was standing at the window, staring directly up at me. I figured there was no way they saw me. It was pitch dark and I just barely peeked enough to see something. There was just simply no theoretical way for them to see me. I went down to the first floor and stopped next to the window. I dreaded what I would see if I looked outside, but I just had to know. I slowly peeked out towards Jim's house, and then I saw it. Nothing. There was nothing at the window. No people. Nothing. I saw the porch light come on and the front door open, and my heart started racing again. Daniel, Alexis, and their kids stepped outside. Thanks for having us, guys, Alexis shouted. Be here next Friday again, yeah? Sarah remarked from the door. They left, and the door closed. And that was that. I wish I could say that this is the weirdest thing that happened to me since, but this was just the beginning. Part 3 the morning after game night with my neighbors, I woke up early, and the first thing I did was peer outside my window to make sure no one was staring again from Jim's house. When I made sure it was safe, I took a shower and made breakfast before work. I replayed the night before in my mind over and over. Everything was going well, we were playing Risk, and then all of a sudden they just started acting weird. After some thinking, I realized it had happened around the same time as the night when they started staring in the middle of the street. Did that radio tower have something to do with it? At first I thought I may have been exaggerating, but after last night, I was sure I wasn't imagining things. My thoughts were interrupted by my doorbell ringing. Still on edge from last night, I approached the door carefully, grabbed the doorknob, and hesitated. The doorbell rang again, so I just yanked it open. Jim stood in front of me, a smile on his face, albeit this time with a noticeable concern on his face. Morning, Chris. How's it going? He asked. I stared him down for a moment, and his concern seemed to get deeper, so I quickly responded. Uh, yeah, good here. How about you, Jim? 
I smiled vaguely. Fine, fine. Are you feeling better today? The sentence caught me by surprise. Better? Um, I mean, yeah, why do you ask? It's just that after last night, we all got a little worried. Worried? What are you talking about? I chuckled. Chris, you just ran out in the middle of the game. We figured you were just feeling unwell and had rushed to the bathroom or something, but we decided not to bother you. I opened my mouth to disagree, but then changed my mind. I stared at the ground and thought for a second before responding. Yeah, sorry about that. I didn't mean to worry you guys, but yeah, I'm better now. Jim pursed up his lips and nodded, squinting at me suspiciously. After a moment, he raised his eyebrows and smiled again, saying, Alright, champ. Well, listen, you're welcome to join next week again. No one's angry or anything. We just got worried, is all. Well, I gotta take the kids to school. So you be good now, okay? Alright, Jim. Thanks for checking up on me. He patted me on the shoulder and went back to his house. I closed the door and approached my window. I followed Jim with my gaze. His children came out the front door and Jim told them something about paying attention in school before they entered the car and drove off. Nothing seemed off in Jim's behavior other than the usual friendliness. I decided I'd be more careful, however, and would try to stay inside during nighttime until I figured out what exactly was going on in this town. The upcoming days went by without a hitch, and I started to feel less anxious about the whole thing. I asked my co-workers and some other people about the radio tower, but no one seemed to know anything about it. The closest I got to any lead was from an old butcher who claimed the tower was probably a shady government project. I asked him for what, but he just shrugged. As crazy as he sounded, his theory actually seemed plausible at that moment. When I asked him out of curiosity how to get to the tower, he said that it's probably not a good idea to try, since there was no known road or trail leading to it. Eventually, I just dropped the topic since I always ended up with no valuable info. Then, a few nights later, I had just returned home from work at around 8pm and got ready to cook dinner. Out of the blue, I started having a severe headache while cutting meat. It was so bad that my vision got blurry, and I had to put the knife down and lean on the table. A moment later, it passed as if nothing happened, so I did the only thing I could do at that moment. I dismissed it continued cooking. That night, I was woken up around 2am by a noise outside my window. It took my groggy mind a moment to realize what I was hearing. Gentle knocking. I glanced at my window, but saw nothing, and thank God for that, because if I did, I think I would have crapped my underwear. Three gentle knocks resounded again, and it became apparent that they were coming from downstairs. I lay in bed, holding my breath and listening. The knocks resounded once more, this time more frantically. I got up and went downstairs, listening to the knocking along the way. It seemed to get more and more frantic and conveyed a sense of urgency. When I finally reached my living room, I realized the knocking was coming from my window. By now it was no longer gentle and deliberate, but rather panicked and impatient. 
I approached my window and perked up my ears one last time to make sure I wasn't just imagining things. After a moment of pause, another loud set of knocks startled me. I moved the curtain away and saw a woman's face against the glass staring back at me. I screamed and stepped back. Please, help me, the woman pleaded. Her eyes were wide in fear, and tears were streaming down her face, mixing in with the dried mud on her cheeks. Her hair was messy and her clothes dirty, as if she had just come back from a triathlon or something. Please, she repeated. If they find me, they'll take me back. I can't go back. Please. I stared at her in disbelief, not sure of what I should do next. She looked genuinely frightened, but what if she was a dangerous junkie? Before I could weigh my options properly, she looked to her right and her eyes widened even more. Oh no, she said with a trembling voice. It's them. They're coming. She looked at me and banged on the window a couple more times, louder than before this time, before looking at whoever was out of my line of sight and then beginning to run in the opposite direction. A moment later, I saw a police car drive by my house and stopped with screeching tires. Two police officers got out of the car. Stop, goddammit, one of the officers shouted. I couldn't see what was going on, so I rushed to the front door and stepped on the porch. Don't move, the officers shouted again as they restrained the woman and handcuffed her. Officer, what's going on? I grabbed their attention. They both jerked their heads towards me, and one of them said, Sir, everything is under control. You should go back inside. They started taking the woman to the car. She looked at me and said, while resisting the policeman, Don't let them take me. I can't go back there. Shut up, the officer shouted, and shoved her on the back seat, slamming the door shut. Sir, go back inside. This is a dangerous criminal, the other officer said. I obeyed, and before going back in, I glanced at the patrol car and the woman's eyes locked with mine. She seemed not so much terrified anymore, but rather desperate. The patrol car drove off, and it wasn't until then that I realized that they had their sirens off the whole time, even when they were chasing her. I saw the curtains on Jim's bedroom window move slightly, but it was too dark for me to see anyone there. I figured Jim was woken up by the whole racket and was curious, just like me. I went back to bed, wondering what the hell had just happened. I barely got any sleep that night. The following day, I saw Jim when I left home. He was getting ready to go to work himself, and he greeted me on his way to the car. Hey Jim, did you see what happened here last night? I asked him. Last night? What do you mean? Jim asked, smiling as always. There was a woman in front of here last night, and the cops arrested her. They said she's a dangerous criminal. You really haven't heard or seen anything? I asked. No, nothing. This happened last night, you said? Yeah. I thought I saw you at the window when it happened. Jim shook his head. Maybe it was one of the kids. No idea. 
But anyway, as long as no one was hurt, all's well, right? He smiled again. I didn't believe him, but decided not to press him. Well, I gotta get to work. I'll see you around, Jim, I said. I got to work and sat by my desk. My routine was to browse the news before I actually started working, and this morning was no different. I opened a news website and started scrolling. There weren't a lot of news in this town, so usually it only took me a few minutes to scroll past the town news and start with the world news. Today, however, as I scrolled down speedily, my hand froze when a picture of a woman appeared on my screen. I stared while my heart rate started to increase rapidly in what I was seeing. Above the picture was the title of the news, which said, Missing Woman Found Dead in Park. The news was from today, and yes, you guessed it. Although the woman in the picture was much different than in person, the similarity was undeniable. It was the woman from last night. Part 4 I requested for my company to be transferred back immediately, not even caring if I had to have a role change. At first my supervisor said it was out of the question, but later finally relented. They said the process might take a little longer since I'd need to change roles, which was apparently more complicated than just switching teams. When I asked how long it would take, they said in the worst case scenario, two months. At the time, that didn't sound so bad to me, so I agreed and told them if the process was not complete by then, I'd quit. Although I was extremely eager to unearth this town's secrets, it was definitely not worth putting my life on the line for it. I decided I'd try to stay under the radar as much as possible and just go on with my mundane activities until my transfer was approved. So did you hear about the missing girl, Jennifer Cook? Josh, my co-worker, asked me on the same day when I saw the news. I read a little bit about that. Who was she? I asked. I didn't want to reveal anything about what I had seen the night before. Josh shrugged. I didn't know her personally. Apparently she moved into town about two months ago and disappeared only two weeks later. Such a tragedy, right here in our small town. Wait, she was new here? I asked. Yeah, she started working for an accounting company. Come to think of it, I think she was transferred, just like you. This statement put me on edge. Did Jennifer know something? and was kidnapped. The cops last night said that she was a dangerous criminal, so for her to be found dead the same night just didn't add up. What if the two officers I'd seen weren't the police at all? I returned home later that day and watched TV, trying to get my mind off things. It didn't help, so I figured I'd go for a quick walk before it gets too dark. And dangerous. Clara was walking her dog Rex, so we stopped to chat a little. You're not going to run out on us again this Friday, will you? She teasingly asked. To tell you the truth, I'll have to see if I got time to even join, I said. You seemed to have fun last time before you got sick, so come on, give it another shot, she winked. We talked for a while, and then she started the topic of Jennifer. Did you hear about the news of the missing girl? She asked. I nodded and decided to test the waters a little bit. 
So I said, I only read a little bit about it. Who was she and what happened to her? I didn't know her well, but she actually worked in my company, Clara said. What? Wow, this town is even smaller than I thought, I said in surprise. So you knew her? Yeah, we basically worked in the same office and spoke here and there. We weren't close, but I knew her. And then she started acting weird a week before her disappearance. Weird? How? I had to get as much information now as possible, while not sounding too curious. Well, she had these moments where she would be paranoid. It's hard to explain, but she'd accuse people of things, and then two days before her disappearance, she started looking over her shoulder. She looked afraid, and like she wasn't sleeping at all. I don't know. It's like she knew something would happen. Was she murdered by someone? I don't know. The police gave no details about the case, so for all we know, maybe it was an accident. I thought for a moment in silence, and then asked, Clara, was Jennifer involved in any illegal activities? Clara frowned and shook her head. Well, I sure as hell hope not. I mean, she was weird, but definitely not a criminal. Why do you ask? I looked down at my shoes and contemplated if I should say what I wanted to say next. In the end, curiosity got the better of me, and I disregarded my own safety. I said, Listen, last night something weird happened. I leaned in and reduced my tone to a whisper. Clara's look of suspicion turned into one of concern. I continued. I was woken up by a noise in the middle of the night. When I went to check it out, I saw a woman at my window. It was her. It was who? She asked suspiciously. Wait, you mean... Hey, kiddos! An unpleasantly perky voice behind me startled me, and I felt Jim's hand on my shoulder. We gotta stop meeting like this. He smiled, and Claire smiled back at him and said hi. Sarah was there too, standing next to Jim. Going for a late night walk, Chris? Jim asked. You know, you should get some rest right now. You'll recover a lot faster. I'm fine. I just needed some fresh air is all, I said. Well, be careful not to stay out late, champ. You probably heard about that girl, Jennifer. So sad. His smile turned into an expression of sorrow before he continued. You know, I heard she got involved with some really bad people. Not sure if it was a gang or whatever, but apparently she poked her nose in a business that wasn't hers. It's a real darn shame, too, because if she just minded her own business, she probably would have still been with us, right? He smiled again and stared at me intently. Jim, that's a horrible thing to say, Sarah said. We don't know what happened to that poor girl. Maybe she had a jealous ex-boyfriend. You're right, honey, I'm sorry. I just always say, live your own life and don't try to be a hero. That's a job for someone like our town's brave policeman. What do you think about the whole thing, Chris? I was caught off guard and suddenly realized all eyes were on me in anticipation of a response. Yeah, I'm not interested in rumors. Just living my own life day by day. I finally responded with a probably unconvincing smile. 
There was an awkward silence as Jim and Sarah stared at me with a creepy smile. Clara broke the silence and said, Well, Rex is getting impatient, so I should get home. Chris, want to walk my way a bit? It's getting dark and I'm a little worried after the whole tragedy with Jennifer. Yeah, sure. Sarah, Jim, have a good night. I broke eye contact with Jim, but still felt his eyes on me when I turned around to walk Clara home. Clara waved to Jim and Sarah, and we went our own way. We chatted a little about stuff, but the tension in the air was palpable. When we finally reached her house, she faced me and said, Thanks for walking me home, Chris. You're really sweet. It's no big deal, I blushed. I guess we can maybe go for walks like these more often? You bet. Well, I'll see you again soon. She approached and hugged me. I hugged back, and when I tried to pull away, she wouldn't let go. She wasn't holding me firmly or anything, just didn't pull away despite me doing so in an obvious manner. And then she whispered in my ear with a trembling voice, Can't talk, they're watching. Meet me in Cafe Bella tomorrow around 3pm. Make it look like a spontaneous meetup. She then pulled away and, still smiling, waved with her fingers and said, Night, Chris. Come on, Rex. She went back inside, leaving me with a mind that raced a million miles an hour. Part 5 That night, as I made my way back home through the unnervingly quiet street, I became increasingly aware of eyes on me. There was no one outside, out in the open, but I was sure at one point that I saw someone peeping from their window. I tried to act as naturally as possible without arousing suspicion. When I entered my house, I locked all doors and double-checked the windows to make sure they're secure. I didn't want to cover all my windows since that could arouse suspicion with my neighbors in case they were watching. When I reached the window in my bedroom, a sharp pang of pain hit my head, just like a few nights ago. It was stronger this time, and through my blurry vision, I saw the red light from the tower blinking outside in the distance. Moments later it stopped, and the headache was completely gone, too. I knew my time was running out, and that I would soon end up like the residents here if I waited for too long. Everything I wanted to know was connected to the tower somehow, I knew that much. Feeling like I was walking on needles and not knowing if I was being watched in that moment, I made my way to my bed and tried to get some sleep. Needless to say, I barely got any that night. In the morning, I got ready to go to work, and on my way to my car, I saw Marcy walking with who I assumed was her husband, Oliver. Morning, dear. She stopped to greet me. Working hard, are we? More like hardly working, ma'am. I replied with a smile. Well, you be careful out there, Oliver said with a stern look. Don't want to end up like that poor girl. I wasn't sure if it was a warning or a threat. I'm sure Chris can take care of himself, Oliver. Marcy gently slapped his wrist. Have a good day, dearie. They went their own way, and I wondered if the people in the neighborhood were really walking around so often or if they were patrolling for suspicious activity. My day at work was boring, and I kept glancing at the watch, 
waiting until 2.30 so I could go to Cafe Bella. Hey Chris, we have a meeting at 3.15pm and we need you there. One of my co-workers said around lunchtime. This all seemed too convenient to be called a coincidence, but I was determined not to be stopped. You know what? I have a doctor's appointment at that time, so you guys will have to send me the minutes after. I quickly made up an excuse and, to my surprise, my co-worker didn't complain. As soon as the clock ticked 2.30, I got up and out of the office. The cafe was close by, so I walked to it. On my way there, I figured I should have bought a weapon of some sort for defense purposes, but then figured it would probably be useless. In the best case scenario, I'd be able to stab an assailant and run away, which would still make me a fugitive. In the worst case scenario, which was a lot more likely to happen, I'd be either arrested by the town's police, or whatever they were, on spot, or swarmed by the residents. The cafe itself had a lot of people inside, but Clara wasn't there yet. I ordered coffee and tried to occupy myself by browsing social media. I resisted the urge not to look over my shoulder. I was beginning to get paranoid, thinking either Clara lured me into a trap or stood me up when I heard her jovial voice behind me. Chris, hi. Fancy meeting you here. Hey, Clara. Seems like this place is really popular, huh? I played along. Yeah, I finished work earlier today and wanted to grab something to drink, and this place is the only good coffee in town. She smiled. With my peripheral vision, I saw one of the guests glancing sideways at us. As soon as our gazes met, he quickly moved his away and continued talking to his date. Hey, do you have time for a walk? There's a park close by, right? I asked. Yeah, I got time. Let's do that, she said. I left some money on the table and we exited the cafe. We made small talk until we entered the park. In retrospect, the park was more isolated and probably a lot more dangerous, but at the time I felt safer somewhere private and away from prying eyes so we could talk in peace. I really like it here, Clara said, especially during winter. Snow really makes this town look magical. We sat down on a bench. In the distance across from us sat an old man on a bench, reading newspaper. We sat in silence for a minute or so, observing our surroundings and listening to the chirping of the birds. You're in grave danger, Chris. Clara finally spoke, not looking at me. This town is a lot more dangerous than you think. I figured. Something strange has been going on since day one, I said, turning my head to her. I need you to tell me about Jennifer. You said you saw her a few nights ago, before she was found dead. Yeah, she was in front of my house. She was dirty, scared, and her clothes ripped, and she begged me to help her before they catch her and take her back, whatever that meant. Then the police caught up to her, and they told me she's a dangerous criminal before they took her away. I should have helped her. Clara looked concerned. She said, There was nothing you could have done. Jennifer was on to something. She kept talking about the tower and how it's responsible for people being brainwashed or something. At first, no one believed her, including me, but then she showed me a video. We were in the office late that day, and 
I don't know what happened, but it's as if I had a memory skip. I've been having that problem before, but I thought it was just me. What do you mean? It's like, I remember working in the office that night, and Jennifer sitting next to me, and the next thing I knew, she was all panicked and trembling, mumbling some incoherent sentences. So, what happened? Take a look. She whipped out her phone and opened her gallery. She clicked on a video and gave it to me to watch. The video showed an office environment from the perspective of a person who held the phone with hands that trembled so badly I could barely catch what I was looking at at first. There were dozens of people standing in front of the person filming, which I instantly figured was Jennifer. They all stared at her with blank facial expressions and their arms hanging limply next to their bodies. What the hell do you want from me? Jennifer shouted through the weeps. The group repeated in unison without any intonation. What the hell do you want from me? Their voices were so synchronized that it may as well have been one person talking. There was no one lagging or going too fast, not even by a millisecond. As Jennifer bounced the phone up and down, I saw Clara among the people staring at Jennifer. Stop it. Just stop it, Jennifer shouted. Stop it. Just stop it. A group of people repeated in a bemused way again. Please, Jennifer shouted, and the group repeated after her. Please. No tone or life in their voice. Leave me alone, she shouted one final time, and suddenly everyone seemed to be back to normal. They were staring at Jennifer with concern, and Clara approached her and asked, Jen, are you okay? What happened? The video ended there. I gave the phone back to Clara and mouthed a, wow. Clara put her phone back in her pocket and asked me, for me, it all started a few days since the tower was built. Tell me, have you been having lately any headaches, memory loss, anything? I nodded. I started having headaches a few days ago, always around the same time. Yeah, about 8.20pm when the tower lights up. Two middle-aged men walked past us, making small talk. I waited for them to be away before I continued. Clara, that night at Jim's place, you were behaving exactly like they did. Clara sighed. I have no memory of it. But after Jennifer showed me the video, she told me about the tower and how it affects the people here. That's when I realized that these memory slips were not a mental problem for my shrink. But you don't seem to be affected like the others entirely. I've been using earplugs every night around that time since Jen told me, and I was going to do it during game night too, but I lost track of time. Next thing I knew, you were gone and we just continued game night normally. I've been living here for a while, but I probably managed to slow down the progress of the signal on me with the earplugs. However, if I continue to get exposed to it, I'm sure I'll end up like the others. And you will, too. So, we need to get out of here? I asked. We can't. Why not? Jennifer tried twice, 
Both times, the police had a roadblock and told her she can't leave due to some hazards. There were only two roads out of town, and both were blocked. I remember Marcy telling me that no one leaves the town once they visit. I started to realize now that there was more of a hidden meaning in her sentence than I initially suspected. So there's only one thing we can do, I said, and she nodded in agreement. We gotta get to the tower. I glanced at the old man reading the newspaper. He flipped a page and continued reading. That's where the next problem comes, she said. Before Jennifer disappeared, she told me what she intended to do. She was sure destroying the tower would break the hold of the signal over the citizens. So she went there, and then she disappeared. I looked down and thought for a moment. What the hell is that tower, I wonder? I said out loud. Marcy said there were some shady people in vans driving through town when the tower was erected. I'm sure they were the ones responsible for the whole thing, but no one knows who they are and who they work for since they came and went so quickly. But we need to reach that tower, Chris. There's no trail there, so it should be left unguarded, at least somewhat. I glanced to my right, and my heart jumped to my throat. There was a tall man standing in the distance, facing Claire and I. He was, without a doubt, looking directly at us. My eyes fell on the old man reading the newspaper, and I realized he was no longer looking down. Instead, his gaze was fixed on us. The two middle-aged men from before were sitting on a bench nearby, silently staring at us. We gotta get out of here, slowly, I told Clara, and she instantly became pale when she realized what I meant. We got up and made our way back the way we came. We suddenly became aware of all the people in the park watching us. None of them were doing anything besides watching us, though. That is, until they were behind us, and then they started following us. Don't look behind, I told Clara as we made our way out of the park. The people on the street outside the park stood motionless, following the two of us with their gazes. Run, I said, and we broke into a sprint, opting for the least crowded path. We kept running into more and more people, who were now slowly walking towards us in silence, but didn't try to actively stop us. We rounded the corner and saw another big group blocking our path. Get back, I shouted, and we turned around the opposite direction, but... It was too late. The crowd surrounded us from all sides entirely. From the crowd, Jim stepped forward smiling as always and said, Hey kiddos, fancy yourself a stroll in the park, huh? Well, it is a nice day after all. See Chris, I told you Claire had a thing for you. He winked. Jim, what are you doing? I asked. We talked about this yesterday, didn't we champ? The whole not being a hero thing? I thought you and I saw eye to eye, but I guess I was wrong, which is a darn shame because we were going to play Cluedo this Friday. He put his hands on his hips and shook his head like a disappointed parent. Oh well, I guess we'll have to find a substitute. He motioned something, and the group immediately started grabbing violently at me and Clara. I shouted for them to let us go while Clara pleaded with them and cried for help. 
I struggled against my captors, but every time I'd managed to wriggle one hand out, someone else would grab me immediately. Pretty soon, I was pinned down on the floor. The last thing I remember before everything went dark was Jim coming up to me and saying, I think you need a timeout, sport. Part 6 I woke up with a throbbing headache. I looked up and my blurry vision started to clear up. It took me a moment to remember what the last thing was that happened and then panic started surging in. I tried to get up but realized that my wrists and ankles were bound behind my back. It quickly became apparent that I was tied to a chair in a basement. A faint light bulb dangled from the ceiling, giving off a sickly glow to the room. Clara was in a chair across from me, with her head down. I called out to her, but she didn't respond. I panicked, thinking she may be dead, but before that dreadful thought set in, she groggily raised her head with a moan. Clara! Clara, are you okay? I asked. She looked at me with bloodshot eyes. Chris? Where? She muttered and looked around. In moments, she was wide awake, with visible fear on her face. She started hyperventilating, straining against her binds, but to no avail. After realizing there was no way out, she started crying. Clara, listen to me. I leaned forward as far as I could. We're gonna make it out of here alive. Let's try to look for something that can help us get out of here. She nodded and became slightly calmer. I observed the room. There was a small window on the other side through which I could see it was dark outside, but I saw nothing that could help us cut the ropes. Clara looked behind me and gestured with her head, saying, There's a knife over there. I craned my neck and saw a rusty-looking kitchen knife among other tools on a nearby table. Okay, okay. I'm gonna try to reach it, I said. I braced myself and hopped with the chair backwards with my entire body. I barely managed to cover any distance, but I was closer, and I was something. I pushed again. Chris, careful. Your chair almost tipped over, Clara said. I looked back at the table. It was still a few feet away. I pushed again. The legs of the chair scraped the floor so loudly that probably everyone in the neighborhood heard it. I decided not to waste any time and pushed again. The table was so close now. Just a few more budges. And then the basement door opened. In walked Jim and Sarah. Awake already, champ? Jim said with a smile. If you were feeling ignored, all you had to do was call. He approached Clara and leaned in towards her, propping himself on his knees. How's that head, sweetheart? I hope the guys weren't too rough, he asked. Clara looked away from him, holding back her tears. Get away from her, I shouted. Jim threw his hands up and said, Whoa, cowboy, I'm a married man. I'd never do that to my sweet wife here. You know, Sarah and I had a lot of marriage problems before. We were even about to get divorced. Right, honey? He put his arm around her. Sarah looked at him and then at us with a smile before saying, you bet, Jim. That was all before the radio tower came into our lives and solved all our problems. We've never been happier in our lives. I can't even remember what we were arguing about. Jim continued. 
You see, we like it when we get new visitors like you, Chris. What we don't like is when someone comes and starts snooping around and trying to ruin our perfect lives here. He took a step away from Sarah and started pacing around the room. He continued, We've been living here our entire life, and then someone like you comes along from time to time and all of a sudden, after just a few days, they start to think they know what's best. That just makes me so darn angry. His face turned red and he swiped his hand across the table violently and knocked down all the tools with a loud clatter. My faint hopes of reaching the knife were completely gone now. Jim, Marcy's voice came from the door. Everyone looked at her and she said, Oliver needs someone to drive him to the hospital. He's feeling really unwell again. Is there a chance you could do it? What, now? Jim asked. Please, Jim. Jim put his hands on his hips and looked at me. He then looked at Clara and threw his hands up, saying, All right, fine. Sarah, can you pick Nick up? Of course, Sarah said, and then looked at Marcy. Marcy, would you mind keeping an eye on these two until I'm back? Of course, dear. My cake won't be done for another hour or so. You just go on and do your business. Jim turned towards me and smiled. Chris, you behave now with Marcy, okay, champ? He winked and gave me a finger gun before leaving the room with Sarah. Marcy closed the door and started humming as she made her way down. She opened the small window and said, We need a little fresh air in here. Marcy, please. Clara wept, but Marcy ignored her and made her way to the scattered tools on the ground. Oh, what a mess. She clicked her tongue and started picking up the tools. Marcy, you have to let us go. They'll kill us like they did Jennifer, I said. Quiet, dearie. She refused to look at me as she rearranged the tools on the table. She stood at the table for a moment before picking something up and coming up behind me. I suppose Jim and Sarah won't be back for another ten minutes, she said. I craned my neck and saw a shiny object in her hand. It was the knife. Marcy, what are you doing? I started to panic. She leaned in and whispered in my ear. You should have eaten my mint cookies, dearie. I closed my eyes, but instead of a stab, I felt the handle of the knife being shoved into my hand. Marcy stood up and went to the door. She turned around and looked at me before saying, Be careful in the woods, dearies. There's no trail there. Oh, and she looked at Clara. Don't you worry about Rex, dear. And with that, she left the room and closed the door. I wasted no time. I gripped the handle of the knife firmly and aggressively sawed through my binds. In less than a minute, the pressure was finally off my wrists, and I quickly cut the rope on my ankles as well. Chris, hurry! Clara kept glancing at the door every second. I cut the ropes on her ankles, and then we heard something that made our hearts drop. Sarah's voice was headed from the living room. You're back already? Marcy asked. Yeah, Nick was quick today. Did those two give you any trouble? Sarah asked. Oh no, dear. How about we go try that cake I'm making? 
By this point, I had already cut through Clara's binds, and we had pushed the chair to the window to climb out. Come on, hurry, I whispered, urging her to climb out first. Sarah continued from the living room. Sure, Marcy, let me just check up on them one more time. Oh, no need, dearie. I made sure. They're fine, Marcy said. Clara was out, and I started climbing right behind her. Just then, I heard the basement door open, and Sarah's, Hey! resounded after us. I squirmed out, and Claire and I started running across the street. Jim's car pulled over in the middle of the road, and he got out, looking at us in disbelief. What the heck? he muttered. Jim, they're getting away! Sarah shouted, and that seemed to break him out of his trance. Claire and I ran all the way across the street and through the entire neighborhood, in the direction of the tower, finally reaching the forested area. The entire time, Jim's voice was heard behind us, and with it, the voices of many other angry residents who were joining in on the chase. Luckily for us, it was pitch dark in the forest, so I figured we could use that to our advantage. Clara, don't stop, I said between breaths when I saw her slowing down. The voices of our pursuers were not far behind, but both Clara and I were already exhausted. After running deeper into the forest, we saw a big log leaning sideways across a gap which we could hide under. We crawled down to it and lay on our backs, trying to stay as still as possible. Seconds later, the sound of hectically crunched leaves under heavy footsteps resounded close to us and stopped right next to the log. Anything? A voice shouted from far away. No, nothing here, the person standing next to the log shouted back. He scanned the area with his flashlight, giving me and Clara a mini heart attack. He stopped his light just beyond our hiding spot and focused on it for a moment. I heard his foot step onto the log. If he looks down, it's all over, I thought to myself. Clara clasped her hands over her mouth and tried to suppress her sobs. Hey, come on! The same voice from before shouted back at the guy. He shone his light away, muttering a, Yeah, yeah, and the sound of leaves being stepped on gradually became distant. After what seemed like an eternity, I raised my head and looked around. There were a few beams of light bouncing far away in the distance, and voices shouting to each other back and forth but Clara and I weren't in any immediate danger. Clara, we have to go. Now, I quietly said to her, and she nodded, tears streaming down her face. We slowly got up and quietly made our way in the opposite direction of the people, being careful not to snap any twigs on the ground. I think the tower is this way. I pointed over yonder. We climbed a hill, and as soon as we did, we saw the tower in the distance. We soon found something that may have been a trail long ago. It was uneven and at times unsafe, winding dangerously close to steep hills. But it was all we had. The trail wound around and went up and down, but it seemed to go in a general direction towards the tower. The voices were completely gone now, and we saw no lights anywhere. You think we'll get there soon? Clara finally spoke up after a little while. It looks pretty close. Maybe an hour away, I said. What if Jim and the others set up a trap for us there? 
she asked. Well, then we'll just have to get there before them, although I doubt any of them know how to reach it anyway. We walked quietly for a while. The trail ended in the leaves and dirt, and we were forced to go back to walking through the woods off trail. We had no electronics on us to navigate the dark, but even if we did, using them would have been suicide in this situation. The only orientation we had was the insidious tower, which seemed to grow in size and danger with every step we took. We trudged on, knowing that every passing second brought us closer to reaching it and ending this nightmare. We had just found another small trail and started walking on it when we caught something with our peripheral vision from above. The tower was blinking with red light. Oh no, I managed to utter before my head exploded with pain. My vision became blurry and I felt my legs going weak. I fell to my knees and I saw Clara standing limply and staring at me with a blank expression. Clara. I tried to reach out to her, but she just stood there. And then everything went completely dark. When I awoke, it was early morning and a thin fog was around me. Clara was nowhere to be found. I called out to her, but only got my own echo as a response. There was no way I could find her in this fog, and I had no idea where she could have gone. So, after careful contemplation, I figured I had to move on and reach the tower, with or without her. I stood up, and with legs that felt like they were made out of lead, I slowly made my way uphill. My head was killing me, and occasionally I'd hear a buzzing in my ears. Maybe the signal was finally starting to get to me. Pushing that thought out of my mind, I climbed the steep hill and finally made it to a horizontal surface, clear of trees. I glanced at the side in front of me and exhaled sharply. I was finally here. Except it wasn't just a radio tower that was in front of me. It was a whole goddamn fenced-off facility. Part 7 Finale I scanned the entire facility from left to right, and it seemed deserted. The facility itself wasn't too big, with a few military vehicles inside the fenced area, and only one building, the one with the tower. I knew I probably should have seen some signs of guard activity by now, but nothing was moving. I also knew I couldn't turn back now, so I willed myself to slowly take a step forward, and then another, testing to see if anyone would shout warnings at me, or shoot me. I went around the fenced area until I reached a big gate, which was open on one side. I glanced at the guardhouse next to the gate, and it seemed empty as well. I approached it carefully and peeped through the window. I couldn't see anything, so I cupped my hands next to my face and squinted. I pulled back with a gasp, my heart thumping fast. Slowly, I approached the glass and looked again. There was a dead body on the floor of the guardhouse. The military uniform which fell baggily over the dead body indicated that the soldier had been dead for some time now, maybe a few days. It didn't look too decomposed. On the one hand, I felt relieved because I knew these guys would have shot me on sight, which was evident from the assault rifle on the floor next to the body. 
Feeling a surge of encouragement, I strode inside and approached the building. I saw two more dead soldiers near the entrance. They looked like the one in the guardhouse. A few days dead and no visible wounds. I opened the sturdy door with a creak loud enough to alert anyone to my presence. In front of me was a pristine white corridor. I made my way through and stumbled across more dead bodies of soldiers and staff in lab coats. Although most of the bodies were like the ones outside, a few of the bodies here looked like they were violently killed. I slowly went through the corridor and saw the entrance to the security room. Before I even got in, I saw dried blood on the glass of the door from the inside. I opened the door and saw a dead body of a guard in the chair by the desk. Camera feed was still on. I approached the body and saw a pistol on the desk next to it. The guard's head was slumped over a laptop. The laptop was plugged in and still on. Holding my breath, I grabbed the body by the shoulders and pulled it back into the chair. I slid the laptop closer to me. Despite the keyboard and screen being covered in dried blood, the laptop seemed to be fully functional. A folder named HMS-23 was open on it. Two Word documents and a video file were inside. I opened the document. It took a moment for the file to open, but when it did, I was faced with a wall of text. Here's what it said. Project HMS-23, dubbed Hivemind, Signal 23. Day 1. Arrival at the facility. Arrival was conducted in civilian vans in extreme secrecy to avoid suspicion from the residents. First signal broadcast scheduled for tomorrow night. Day 2. First signal broadcast. No visible changes. Day 9. Residents complain of mild headaches. Day 15. Residents complaining of severe headaches and some of them suffering loss of memory. Day 26. First visible effect of the signal. At approximately 8.20pm when the signal was broadcasted, residents went to a trance-like state. They seemed to be unaware of this, since they resumed their daily activities as soon as the signal's effects wore off, as if nothing even happened. Day 45. Residents displaying progressive hive mind behavior. Today, when the signal was broadcasted, residents conducted simple actions unanimously, staring at the same object and taking two steps at the exact same time, despite no prior agreement to do so. Day 62. Residents displaying more positive and friendly behavior towards each other than usual. Reduction of negative emotions evident. Day 91. Residents displaying full collective consciousness during signal transmission. However, the effect wears off with the signal. Further analysis needed. Day 103. New residents arriving to town at our request from client. Redacted. New residents will be used for experimental purposes in order to see if they can be integrated with the current hive mind. Day 111. We are able to manipulate the residents' actions by putting them in a hypnotic state during the signal broadcast and inputting the proper commands via signal frequencies. This is currently used to keep the town's authorities in check 
and instill the instinct to protect the tower in case anyone suspects anything. Day 114 One of the new residents, Jennifer Cook, beginning to suspect something being wrong in town. She is to be monitored more closely. Other residents seem to be unsuspecting of anything. Day 123 Jennifer Cook detained by the guards. She was found in the forested area outside the facility. Due to the risk of exposure, she will remain in confinement and continue to be exposed to the signal. Day 143 Staff members complaining of buzzing in their ears. Suspected placebo effect since all facility members are strictly forced to wear soundproof earphones during the signal broadcast. Visit to the psychologist and doctor shown no changes in brain activity. Day 160 More and more staff members complaining of headaches. The file ended there. I closed it and opened the other file. As soon as it popped up, I was met with the title, New Test Subjects. Below that, in a parenthesis, it said, simply, All subjects were sent in agreement by client companies. Under the title were two columns, one named Subjects and the other named Clients. I scrolled down, and my heart skipped a beat when I saw my own name listed as Subject. Right next to my company's name, listed as Client. I stared at my name for what seemed like an eternity, trying to comprehend what I was looking at, and then I was overcome with a rage unlike I've ever felt before. My company knew exactly what was going on, and they sent me here as a test subject. I wanted to get out and run back to my HQ and strangle my boss with my bare hands. I closed the file and opened the video, which started playing. The dead guard next to me popped on the screen, recording himself with the laptop from the security room. He seemed distressed. Beads of sweat were on his forehead, and he held one hand on his side which clearly showed he was wounded. He exhaled sharply and said, This is security member Mark Reynolds. I was one of the guards who volunteered to participate in the HMS-23 project. The project was run by a very small, private organization, and I reckon that by now everyone who is on board is either dead or brainwashed. The entire company, consisting of 45 people, were part of the project, and no outside sources know what happened here since sending and receiving communication has been disabled here due to the secrecy of the project. He took a long pause and then continued. It all started about a month ago, when the staff members started complaining about headaches. No one took them seriously, stating it was a placebo effect. But we underestimated the strength of the signal. It's much stronger here, and even with our ear protection, we were affected by it. Some were affected faster, while others, like me, are still okay. I hear buzzing in my ears occasionally, so if I continue to get exposed, I'll end up like them. I know none of this makes sense, but whoever finds this open and read the file in the folder it explains everything in detail. Anyway, things went to shit when the signal was broadcast three nights ago. The whole facility went batshit crazy. Look at this. He turned the laptop towards the camera feed, and as Reynolds moved the view across the monitor, I saw people on the camera standing in a trance, not moving, all over the facility. 
There were dead bodies next to some of the zombie-like people, but it's like they didn't care about that at all. Reynolds turned the laptop back around and said, Everyone went into a fucking trance, like the residents in town and those who didn't, they scrambled to safety. The ones affected haven't moved since the last broadcast, because the signal is programmed to automatically broadcast itself every few days. I doubt they'll come to their senses. It can only get worse. I tried to reach the control panel, but whatever these fucking scientists did, the brainwashed people are highly protective of the control room now, and will attack anyone who gets near. I saw a guy on camera get ripped into fucking pieces by the crowd. They won't let us out either, and most of the people who made sudden moves or tried to get out are dead now. In all that mess, Jennifer was the only one who managed to get out. I can't tell if they didn't attack her on purpose, or she just got lucky. But either way, she seems unaffected by the signal, so I hope she's safe. The brainwashed people started literally dropping dead one by one since three days ago. After days of standing in one spot, probably from dehydration and exhaustion. I could wait it out until they all die and then turn off the tower signal, but I probably wouldn't outlast them. When I tried to get to the control room, I was attacked by the group and one of them managed to stab me. It's not going to be long until I bleed to death. Strangely though, as soon as I went back to the security room, they returned to their spots, not caring about me anymore. He paused and took out a pistol with his blood-covered hand and said, I guess I deserve this. I knew what I was getting into, but the pay was just too good to pass up on. The signal won't stop broadcasting, even with all the staff members dead. If anyone unaffected by the signal finds this, put an end to this before it's too late. Please. He began breathing shallowly. Without a moment of hesitation, he pointed it to his mouth and fired. His lifeless body fell with a loud thud over the laptop, moving the camera upwards in the process. The video continued like that for a few more hours before ending, but I skipped through those parts. I closed the laptop and looked at the camera feed. Nothing was moving. This could be my only chance to destroy the tower. The facility was fairly small, so finding the control room shouldn't be difficult. I grabbed Reynolds' gun and went out. I strode down the corridor and turned left at the fork. The sign, Control Room, was pointing straight, so I followed it. When I reached the door at the end, I practically kicked it down and went inside. In front of me was a room filled with corpses of both scientists and soldiers alike. The room reeked of feces, urine, and rot. Behind was a big control panel with dozens of buttons and a monitor on top of it. The display read, Next Signal Broadcast in 16 hours, 24 minutes, 18 seconds. I figured I didn't need to have the knowledge to use the panel, as long as I shot it to hell. I took a step forward and aimed the gun at the panel. It all ends here, I thought to myself. Don't do it, champ. A voice came from behind me. I turned around and faced Jim. For the first time ever since I saw him, he looked afraid. 
and pointed the gun at him. Stay back, you bastard, I said. Relax, I'm not going to harm you. He raised his hands. See, I didn't bring any weapons. I stared at him for a moment before finally asking, Where's Clara? She made it back to town. She's one of us now, he said. And you can be too. You would never have to worry about anything again. You'd be happy. Truly happy. That's bullshit and you know it. This tower twists your mind, makes you a zombie. Chris, please. I'm not going to let him make decisions for me. I pointed the gun at the panel and put my finger on the trigger. My youngest son is dead, Jim recited quickly, effectively stopping me from pulling the trigger. I looked at Jim, who was crying now. He continued. One year ago, my son was in an accident. He died before reaching the hospital. The six months following Taylor's death were the worst of my life. I turned to alcohol. I neglected Sarah and my other two kids. Sarah was about to leave me, and I was just about ready to commit suicide. And then, it all just disappeared when the tower was built. The depression, the grief, the alcoholism, the pain. All gone in a day. I was my old self again, and my family could start anew. And not just me, there were many residents like me who the tower helped. Don't you understand? The point of this signal isn't to enslave us, but to create perfect lives for us. To save us. They sent you here for a reason, Chris. Because they knew you needed the signal. I lowered my gun and stared at Jim. He was right. I was having trouble coping with my fiancé leaving me before I moved here. That's probably why my company sent me here. I was the ideal candidate. Chris, I'm begging you. Don't make me go back to that dark place. Don't take this away from me. Jim wept. I closed my eyes and exhaled sharply. I thought about living my life like Jim and the others, without any pain and grief. A blissful life in a small town where nothing bad could ever happen. Then I opened my eyes and said firmly, We have to take responsibility, Jim. Before Jim could say anything more, I turned around and started blasting at the control panel. I kept pulling the trigger until I was out of bullets, and the control panel was left damaged beyond repair. The monitor displayed an error message, and I finally dropped my gun on the floor. Jim was on his knees, weeping. I'm sorry, Jim. I can't imagine what you had to go through. But you can't live your life like that. The fact that you feel something is what makes you human, and if you take that away, you're no better than a lobotomized patient. He looked at me tiredly, with bloodshot eyes, but said nothing. I said, I know you never wanted to harm me or Clara. It was all the signal. It programmed you to protect it. I helped him up and said, Let's go back. Your family needs you. It took us a few hours to return to town, and once we did, 
Sarah was waiting for us with a worried expression on her face. She and Jim hugged and cried. I looked down the street towards my house and saw Marcy, Clara, and Rex standing in front. I ran to them and hugged Clara, who apologized over and over for leaving me in the woods. I told her it's okay, because in truth, I was just glad she was okay. We should go inside, dearies, Marcy said. I made some cookies. When I looked at her, she winked and said, Don't worry, they're not mint-flavored. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers. <laughs>